Welcome to Brand Growth Heroes, the podcast that explores how insurgent brands in consumer goods categories are driving transformational growth. Here our guests talk not only about their brand purpose or why, but also how where they play, who they employ, and how they work has driven their incredible success. If you've listened to the first few episodes of Brand Growth Heroes, you'll know that one of the new four Ps driving the transformational growth of insurgent brands in CPG categories is process, or how these disruptive brands define and attack growth challenges in a totally different way to traditional or less successful brands. One of these challenges is managing the transition between how you approach marketing investment as an emerging brand versus how you think about it and deliver it when you're investing heavily in driving mass market penetration. If you've been pootering along nicely with sampling and social media, but you know that at some point you're going to have to get your head around what a more strategic approach looks like, then this episode is for you. To get us a masterclass on how to think about grown-up marketing investment, I caught up with Mark Mulhern, a brand performance coach in New York with a spectacular background managing client accounts with hundreds of millions of pounds and dollars of advertising spend for clients such as Mars, Unilever and McDonald's. Mark, how are you doing? Thank you so much for coming on the show. Hi, Fiona. Thank you very much for having me. Thrilled to be here. It's brilliant. So disclosure, first of all, to everyone who's listening, Mark and I have been friends, very good friends for over 25 years. We studied business together in Trinity College in Dublin. And then we did our London stint around the same time, right? Both on graduate schemes for big companies, you on, on the agency side and me on client side. And here we are. And here we are. <laughs> With kids and all, all grown up <laughs> across the pond you are. So tell everybody who's listening what you've been doing over the last 20 years so we can let everybody know just how much of this stuff you actually have dealt with. Yeah, sure. Um, well, look, over the last 20 years, I've worked with about 20 marketing leadership teams in my time at five great agencies in the UK initially and more recently in the US. Uh, in terms of agencies, to give you a sense of them, I started my career at AMV BBDO in London. And then later on, I spent about four years at BBDO in New York. I left uh, BBDO to move all the way from the top of the marketing funnel to the bottom of the marketing funnel to join uh, iCrossing as the president of their New York office. That meant that I went from creating demand at the top of the marketing funnel to capturing demand with things like uh, search and digital at the bottom of the funnel. Uh, and then most recently, I was at uh, DDB, where I ran a division called We Are Unlimited, which was a dedicated agency created uniquely for McDonald's in the US. We did absolutely everything for them, from the TV ads to all of the digital touch points to the in-store materials for 14,000 stores across uh, America. In terms of other brands I've worked on, to give you a sense of range, uh, when I was in the UK, Walkers and Sainsbury's were two big ones with... Uh, the Try Something New Today campaign. And then when I got to the US, um, I had the fun of launching an airline, uh, Virgin America. And then subsequently, I worked on great brands like Mars Pedigree, AT&T, Lego, and Amazon. And most recently at DDB, after my stint on McDonald's, I ran the global uh, relationship with Unilever. So wow. a lot of categories, a long time. And my, my, my role now is to bring the benefit of that range and expertise to working with founders and owners of insurgent brands to help them drive their marketing success. So for those of us who don't necessarily understand all of those things, what it, that basically means, I'm a, I, I know because I know you well, is that you've worked on massive TV campaigns, massive outdoor campaigns. You were there from the beginning of digital emerging right through to specializing it towards the end of your the, the, your your stint agency side and you've worked with 
really huge global brands, including managing global accounts for Unilever. It's no small fry, really. <laughs> it's been an exciting journey. I've looked to uh, change along with how the marketplace is changing in terms of how consumers engage with advertising and engage with, with brands. And it seems to me that the future is going to be about integrating all of the elements of this brand experience into one. And I wanted to make sure I was uh, equipped uh, to, to, to know about that. Well, that is a brilliant segue, as they say, on all the, the best cliched shows, which is which leads me to ask you our first question, which is I brought you on today to try and explain to me what does it mean for an emerging brand that is on a steep growth trajectory and they have got to the point where they realise they need to do some grown up marketing, that maybe what they did up until now, a bit of sampling, a bit of social media, isn't necessarily going to cut it when they're going to try and drive distribution, drive penetration on a national level, for example, and become, say, more mass market than they were previously. How should they be thinking differently and what should they be doing differently yeah, and this is such an exciting uh, point in time for any brand, that moment between being a startup and a grown-up. And if you've gotten to this point, you've got a product that consumers love, you've got partners in your business, whether it's on the supplier side or on the retailer side, you're starting to grow your team, you're really starting to recruit at pace. Um, in terms of marketing particularly, you will have done an off-site or three to uh, define your, your purpose, your, your brand onion, your brand pyramid, whatever model you're, you're using. Uh, you've done some, uh, some social, some activations, some events, some sampling. Um, and really, I think it's probably been defined by jumping on opportunities as they come up, that sort of hustle of, uh, of, of brand growth. And now you're getting to a point where you have a great deal more opportunities. Either you've taken uh, external investment or you've grown your own business to the point where uh, you can grow into new markets. And really, the, the defining element here is you need to jump from, you need to go from jumping on opportunities as they come up to prioritizing amongst all the opportunities you now have and, and find and focus on the three ish big marketing initiatives that will drive your business in the next three months, but also the next two and three years. Um, it's not complicated, but it is hard. Uh, and especially when as a founder owner, you're often having to now manage through other people, you're having to manage potentially multiple markets. Um, so I work with founders and owners to help them identify what those priorities might be. I think the three that we've found to be effective are talking about attitude, talking about assets and talking about audiences. So tell me about this then, attitude, assets and audiences. Yeah, it starts with attitude. Um, and, you know, at this point in growth, you're going to want to hire a marketing lead. And uh, that is absolutely the right thing to do. You're going to need someone who's got the pattern recognition of having done this before. Uh, and that person needs to have the room to take on the responsibility and the accountability for, for marketing. Um, what I think is critical as the ultimate owner of the business, the one thing that you can still stay involved with marketing is to make sure that marketing is happening with an attitude of accountability. Um, and it, the, the world of marketing and the world of advertising can quite naturally lean towards the tried and detested. Uh, and your job is to make sure that as marketing choices are being made, the, the activities that are happening are delivering business outputs because there can be a tendency to fit, focus on inputs, mm -hmm. things like how many impressions a campaign had, not outcomes like sales. Uh, and as an insurgent brand, you need to constantly challenge that. And in the short term, as the, as the ultimate founder and owner, you'll be making a bit of a pain of yourself to your marketing team. But in the medium and long term, 
you'll be creating a culture of accountability and understanding about, you know, when you pull this lever, what happens in terms of brand growth? Okay, well, let me put something to you. I mean, I work with an awful lot of founder owners who would say to me during a coaching session or a mentoring session or on an accelerated program, yeah, look, you know, I'm not big into the whole marketing thing. It's not my, it's not my gig. I'm much more into ops or, or supply chain or, or product first and foremost, but I've just found an amazing marketing person and they're going to look after all of that for me. And they should, they should look after all of those things. They should look after the marketing uh, execution, but they should also, if they're good, be able to answer very simple questions about each of the marketing activities that are going on and how it is driving the business. And there can be a tendency to look at it as a bit of a magical black box. And I think there are elements of magic to this in terms of creating campaigns, but ultimately we're in service of selling more products and people should be able to explain Uh, exactly how individual marketing activities are doing that. So the key thing here, though, is in terms of the founder owner, they can't just pan off the entire responsibility for this to this new marketing manager person, because that's what I see all the time. They're almost afraid of it, um, scared that they don't understand it and glad that when they bring somebody on, they're not going to have to worry about it anymore. And that's not the right attitude, is it, for the CEO? It's not the right attitude for the CEO because the CEO's job ultimately is about creating the right culture for a company. And culture is a squishy word. But for me, my favorite definition is it's just the way things are done around here. And the way things that should be done in marketing is that they should be done with an eye towards clear understanding of their contribution to to business. So yeah, don't treat it as a black box. Don't treat it as something to step away from. Treat it as something whereby you're able to ask simple questions about what individual marketing activities uh, deliver. Okay. Have you got any great examples of brands that do that well? The, from my career, the, the people who did this well, and it may not be a surprise, is, is working with Amazon. And we were working to launch a, a, new, um, a new service with them. And their unbelievable focus on getting down to understanding the very fundamentals of a category and what it takes to perform in that category was really, really interesting. As you know, they, they don't do uh, decks. Decks can be a great place for the uh, cut and paste of previous plans. They, they go back to a very uh, simple two to three page document that, that forces a brutal simplicity of thought uh, that I think is incredibly valuable. And they, they also do not like to use proxies for performance. Excuse me. They do not like to use proxies for performance. They like to use actual performance. So um, what, what does that mean? You don't lose. Yeah. So, so again, rather than, rather than saying, Hey, our campaign was a success because it reached Humpty Dumpty million people is our campaign was a success because it, you know, it can be attributed to delivering this many sales in this region. Okay. So stay, I hate that when people talk about impressions and likes and proxies like that. So you would steer away from that people, people should be steering away from that. I'm with you. Those things are vanity metrics. And just because they can be measured easily doesn't mean they should be measured and they certainly shouldn't be used as a measure of success. So you've got to get past those kind of metrics and understand how individual activities are leading to marketing success. So just to be really, really clear on this, because this is one of my big bugbears and I just want to get this out there. If you're a founder CEO and you don't really understand marketing, and you're bringing on somebody who you believe understands marketing better than you, right, into the business, you still have to try and understand how marketing, what the marketing model that is going to drive sales in your business is, right, and be part of that kind of 
architecture you talked about before in a pre-call with me, the architecture of, of the marketing model in your business. You And then keep asking all the questions to make sure that the levers the marketing manager is deciding to pull are the right ones. You can't just walk away entirely from the internal mechanics of the situation and just focus on product or sales or any of the other things that you like to do. What I would say is you've got to make it a core part of that person's job if you're hiring a CMO or a a head of marketing. A huge part of that person's job has got to be the ability to explain to you how individual marketing initiatives work and how they're delivering. If you're smart enough to have founded a business and got it this far, you're smart enough to understand marketing. The problem is a lot of people hide behind gobbledygook and charts. And, uh, and and again, it comes back to, as a leader, you get to define the, the culture and the expectations. And I think the expectations you have to set ahead of marketing is that they're able to explain things simply to you. Yeah. And, and, and one of the things I like to do is ask them what they think marketing is. And it's taken me 20 years in my career to work out for myself what I believe marketing to be, uh, which is uh, to create a change in the, in the behavior of, of, of people you want, whose behavior you want to change. And then you have to ask yourself, what marketing levers am I going to pull to create that change? That's exactly right. And there is a tremendous interrelationship between all those elements of, of marketing and what you do in one part of the world, uh, you know, so easily and positively can impact what you're doing in others. So let's talk about your second A then, which was assets. Yeah, sure. This was relatively early in my career. Um, I didn't work on it, but one of my favorite launches of all time was Innocent in the, in the UK. And one of my favorite quotes to come uh, from that is that a great, a great brand is made up of a hundred nice little touches. And that brand, more than anything, uh, understood that everything a brand does says something. They identified key consumer touch points and they made them special in a way um, that brought to life their brand. And that's why they had delivery vans covered in grass. They had a super consistent visual treatment. They had gorgeous pack copy and they called their customer support number the banana phone. Um, and it is that attention to your touch points that I think is even more important today, uh, even though it would obviously be very different in how it comes to life because there's so many more digital touch points like search and social and, and e-commerce. And my advice would be to forget about creating an ad campaign as an end in itself. Wow. Create am- amazing owned assets and experiences that nail your brand promise and benefits for yourself, your employees, and your consumers in the touch points that really matter to your consumer. So it's, it's about starting with the consumer. How do they experience your brands? How do you maximize each one of those, whether it's an Amazon sales page, whether it's a website, whether it's a social feed, Use those as a way of articulating your brand voice. And then it will very naturally flow into classic ads where you need to use those. And is that something that's evolved for you over time? I mean, when you started your your career in AMV back in the days, I mean, it was even called Abbott Mead Vickers, wasn't it, that long ago? Yep, it was. You know, would, would advertising have been or marketing have been, the, the end back then was to have a TV campaign or, or at least an outdoor campaign, right? It wasn't about you know, integrating your, um, your, your, your brand look and feel across a whole lot of touch, touch points, or maybe it was for certain people, but the end game was still having a big ad campaign, wasn't it? Yeah. Let, let's be clear. The world was, the, the world was primarily analog and there were an awful lot of gatekeepers that, that stopped the kind of, uh, amazing innovation brands and, and products that we see today. I mean, it was a closed loop system. You did advertising, to, to drive mental availability. You drove people to a store where there was limited physical availability. And then you you fed that flywheel and used your scale to, to grow further 
to grow further strength. And so breaking into that was very hard. But but nowadays, uh, through search, through social, um, there is just so much more to manage. Uh, and there's so many more opportunities to be meaningful to consumers. And, and I think that's what makes this time so exciting. It makes it so possible for insurgent brands. So your advice to emerging brands is to forget about creating an ad campaign and focus on creating amazing owned assets. And that can, that can cost money, right? So besides packaging, what else might they, what else might they be owning in terms of these assets? Yeah, before before getting to an ad campaign, make sure that your your all of your own touch points are working for you as hard as they possibly as possibly can. Those touch points will uh, primarily start with the things that consumer experiences in their hand, as you said, like packaging, like retail. Uh, it obviously your all of your digital touch points. You need to choose. You can spend a lot of money trying to be everything to everyone everywhere. Um, so choose a couple of high leverage channels. Uh, that might be uh, your website, and that might be your social feed. Uh, that might be how you show up in search. People do a staggering amount of search, okay. uh, even in the most banal categories. What happens when someone search your ketchup brand and someone searches for ketchup? How do you show up in that moment? Okay. So thinking through that 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 journey and what happens. We live in an algorithm-driven world on the digital side. And so you've got to pay attention to what's going to happen when people type in your product name or your product category. What do they receive from you? And how do you make that something that's that's additive and valuable and, and stands out against the big guys? Um, so those are those are some of the owned uh, touch points. And then obviously in the, in, the, in the commerce world, whether it's a Shopify experience or whether it's, it's an Amazon experience, you've got to optimize those for what those brands are very clear about works uh, for their for their platforms. The final A then that I, I like to focus people on is this thought around audiences. And insurgent brands have a big advantage in that they can really be for someone in a way that established brands can't. They've started with a point of view on the world. They they tend to know their consumer better, primarily maybe because they have a more focused audience. And it's about how do you leverage that to build your own audience or even better, a sense of community around your brand. It's expensive business buying other people's audiences, finding people for your product to, meant to, you know, to drive mental availability, mental availability on Facebook or Instagram or outdoor. It's effective, but it's, uh, it's expensive. And so creating your own direct connection with your audience to drive repeat sales and long-term brand affinity. Um, and now for your business, it'll be different, but whether that's an email list, a physical mail list, uh, or a data management platform, form depends on you, your consumer, and what you've done already. But the big point is you need to start to put a big chunk of effort against owning the relationship with the people who buy your products instead of buying that connection from a media owner or a retailer. So rather than thinking of some of those things which have historically been quite direct response to, how do you think of them as as consciously brand activities? Ah. The the brand that, that does this absolutely brilliant, which again, I'm sure a lot of your listeners know about is Hyde Denim. I just think they've done an incredible business of patiently building a brand over time with virtually no advertising, uh, even though that's something the founders happen to be incredibly good at. They've just built it through this sense of audience and, and community. And it stands to them in terms of reducing the, uh, you know, increasing the potential of sales in the future and reducing the cost of those sales. Okay. It's funny, isn't it? Because you know, my friend, uh, Paul, 
who has worked in Google and Facebook and in San Fran. And he went to Intercom about five years ago. Um, he runs uh, runs a big chunk of Intercom now. But uh, when he did, we all sat around the table, not really understanding what he was talking about. You know, what is Intercom and why would small businesses want to be able to talk directly to their consumers? Like, you know, I mean, through a website, you know, why would they want to be able to do that? And why couldn't they already do it? How could it possibly be any richer than it already was when you just got like this little pop-up bubble? Yep. We didn't understand it. But it's basically what you're talking about now. It's rather than imagining it as a rather than framing it as direct response or direct mail in the olden days, or let's do some direct mail. It's like every single time we interact with a, a consumer or potential consumer or a shopper online, how do we see it as a brand activity? That's a that's brilliant, exactly right. that's a brilliant reframing. It's a, it's expensive. It's difficult and expensive to get customers. And how do you keep them and how do you grow that relationship over time? And uh, that that's what I think the era that we live in uh, allows us to do. And I think it's a really important sort of mental capability for people to start to, to think about because it allows you to grow the lifetime value of the customers that you win. Okay. And the denim that you were talking about, I know that's got a funny spelling. I hadn't come across it before. So tell, it, tell us how uh, you spell it. Yeah, H H I U T. I'm not even right. sure I'm pronouncing it right, but height denim. Okay, and that's a, a guy who bought a Welsh factory. Tell us, that's a nice story. Yeah, uh, the story is probably best told on their own website. But there's a lovely, um, it's a lovely story about a, a factory in Cardigan in Wales that had stopped making jeans some years ago for M and S, uh, and Dave and his wife Claire have come back in. They bought the uh, bought the factory, and they are bringing back the expertise of making denim in cardigan again. And so it, it's a very purpose-driven effort and they're very, uh, they're not doing what many brands would then do is like, oh, buy our sweatshirts. They're saying, nope, we want to do one thing. We want to do They're not doing cardigans then. Well, ironically, they're not doing cardigans. <laughs> I wonder how long it'll be before someone buys them and makes them do cardigans. <laughs> Uh, interestingly, they've been through that. Again, it's a it's a brand worth looking into if you're if you're an insurgent brand uh, founder or owner. Uh, they've been through that with a previous brand they had called Howie's, and uh-huh. uh, I think they everything everything that they learned. There's much of that experience that they learned that they do not want to to repeat. I, I'd encourage everyone to take a okay. look at what they're doing and how they're doing it because I think they're something of a template for for contemporary marketing. So a lot of the insurgent brands that I'd be talking to, you know, they're coming out of the the emerging brand uh, space and, and and some of them fast tracking their way into kind of becoming insurgent brands where they have worked for years and in, in instinctively they've known that they've had to have, you know, the exactly the right product experience, exactly the right packaging experience, whether that's the, the top opening or the text on pack or how it is on shelf, um, the merchandising or, you know, even where it's being found um, in, in, in clever corners of a of an office kitchen or, you know, in a cafe or um, in fresh rather than in, in ambient. And, and they've got all of that right. And they've also got their social media right. And they've probably been doing it in-house. Um, but then they come to a point when they say, right, we, we know that we're doing all of those things right. And we have a strong brand positioning and a clear brand uh, personality. What are, what are they going to do differently now that they're trying to drive penetration, say, at a, at a national level? When you and I started our careers, there was only one big step up that you would do. And it's about taking a great insight and turning it into an ad campaign that really resonated with people. Now, the world being the way it is, the way people consume media, the way people consume products, uh, it is about maximizing all of those touch points and making sure that you're winning on all of those. And then 
you, then you can step up to the advertising campaign that really drives the mental availability. So in summary, we're talking about attitude, uh, we're talking about assets and we're talking about audiences. Well, that's been really insightful for me. Thank you, Mark. So I imagined when we when we kind of started planning this that I was going to get a masterclass in, um, well, right, you're going to move from sampling to, uh, you know, this kind of advertising. But in fact, no, I mean, it's a lot of the same stuff, maybe on a bigger scale, but with a different mindset um, and with a different approach. That's right. Okay. Well, let's move on to our next section then, which is going to be to debunk or discuss at least some of the myths surrounding big marketing or grown-up marketing spend or advertising. And the first one that we thought was going to be interesting to look at is, should brands increase their advertising or their marketing spend during a recession? Because obviously that is a very relevant question right now for a lot of people. Yeah, and I don't want to answer it in the abstract uh, about any old recession. I want to talk about this recession. Uh, the There is evidence to say that if you increase your spend of share uh, during a recession, that as the recession ends, you will see a positive return on that. So yeah, if you go by the textbook, there's, there's, there's data there. Now, I think the nature of this moment, though, founders and owners are having way more difficult conversations. This is not just about moving things around in cells in a, in a spreadsheet and, and projecting growth in the future. This is about the survival of the company today. And this is about really significantly thinking about, uh, you know, what do retail partners want? There's going to be a, a real we're seeing in the US this week, big story around how uh, ranges are going to be very radically reduced. Do we really need 40 types of, uh, of toilet paper in the in a supermarket? Probably not. Could we get by with six? So there's a lot to, there's a lot to manage for the, uh, the founder owner right now in terms of how they are successful on a product level, on a pricing level, how they're keeping their employees safe, how they're making their operations uh, work. Uh, I think there's a huge surge in, in uh, direct consumer and e-commerce that needs to be to be contemplated. And so my sense is it is a little dishonest to go out and say, yes, spend more on advertising because it would be good for you in the long run. I think there's a much more mature conversation to be had around, hey, are you winning in all these important new ways that are going to be long-term trends? Uh, And then, yes, if you have money and effort left over after that, sure, advertise. Uh, but make sure you address those things first. Well, that sounds like a really, really balanced, intelligent uh, point of view. So thank you for that. The next one I wanted to look at was one that I hear all the time. I even saw a LinkedIn post recently from um, quite a well-known insurgent brand of the UK. Uh, We've just done our first outdoor campaign. We've made it. It can be a very satisfying moment when you see your brand on a on a billboard uh, on the side of the motorway for for the very first time. During Um, during lockdown. During... That's less exciting. That's yeah. less exciting. They, made, they made a like great a joke lot. out of it. They made, they made a good play of it because it was kind of funny and they'd booked the media and they had to do it. But, you know. Um, well, look, what you're talking about here is that moment where you, uh, where you focus on creating your, your first ad, ad campaign. I think, um, you know, what does advertising do? Advertising is designed to d- drive sales and deliver a continued kind of price premium for your product over time. Uh, you want to, as you're creating an ad campaign, think about it in terms of brand response. You're always going to want aspects of your campaign that can that can drive emotional attachment, brand affinity in the long run. So people you know, care about you and remember you as a brand. And you're always going to want to do things that juice sales today uh, and whether that's uh, promoting a price or promoting a new range. So as you, as you concept a new campaign, make sure that you can, can do both of those things equally well. That's, that's how you design the most responsible campaign. Um, 
to other things to focus on, make sure that your proposition and your point of view on the world is incredibly sim- single-minded and simple. Uh, it's really hard to do this. Uh, I'm not going to get the stats entirely right, but uh, there is there is there was a, a story a while ago around about three years after launch, something like only 15% of UK consumers knew that Coke Zero actually had no sugar in it. <laughs> uh, and that's not to knock consumers. It's just we forget how little people really care about advertising and, and yeah. products and how much work we have to do to to break through. So that's the first thing, incredibly simple proposition and, and point of view. Um, and then the second thing is uh, your brand distinctive assets need to be consistent. This is the single biggest thing that, that the people underestimate is just making sure your brand is recognizable um, at every single touch point and you coming across consistent leaders. Lots of gags over the years about conversations between clients and uh, agencies around how big is the logo, but the conversation needs to start bigger than that, which is how is that an unrecognized, how is that an unmistakably recognizable ad for, for our brand? Sure. Uh, so, um, and then, um, when it comes to campaigns, I mean, the first thing is you need to be you need to be noticed. The day after recall on all advertising is shockingly low. It's about single digit. It's single digit remembering uh, the the morning after you were watching TV last night. So your job is to make sure you're one of the ads that people uh, remember. And sometimes that can be just the nature of what you're you're saying. You've got a product that's so interesting and different. Mm-hmm. Uh, then uh, it can be that. And if it's not that proposition, it just needs to be the execution. So if you are launching the new iPhone, you can probably rely on showing what the new iPhone does. You've got a lot of pent-up demand and interest. If you are launching yet another car insurance product into the UK market, uh, it's not about your proposition. It's different about how you execute. And okay. That's why that's, I think, been such a great hotbed of creativity over the years because they've needed to compete on the basis of creativity to stand out and be and be noticed. One of the big discussions online in terms of marketing spend is often about how much of marketing spend should be to drive long-term brand growth versus short-term sales. Because you do different things with your marketing spend depending on whether you want to drive your brand share in the longer term or your sales now, right? Where do yes. you stand on that? The the work that I would uh, look to on this because it is, uh, you know, been done over time at large scale, uh, a significant size. So the work I would look to on this is the work by uh, Benet and Fields, which is uh, relatively well known in the in the UK. Uh, they've looked at a really significant base of campaigns and, 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 and looked at the modeling behind them. They would say that it's about 60% in favor of, of brand, long-term brand favorability, and about 40% uh, of the work should be about driving um, sales in the short term. They have a nice, they have a nice saying that all long, long-term activity can be uh, useful in the short term, but no short-term activity will, will be useful in the long term. Well, that's nice. And so, yeah, it's it's important to remember that uh, the work that we do to you know create positive, often emotionally driven brand associations uh, really does last for for years and pay back over over mm. time. There's always the temptation to chase uh, the short term pop that comes from uh, something more immediate. But if you can sit there and look at your marketing investment across the year and making sure you're doing things that uh, deliver long term uh, affinity, that will always pay back. Well, McDonald's is always a good example of this because uh, there is a 
you know, you've got a heavily calendared year, you know what you're selling every month, uh, and you've got to make that window uh, successful. And yet, if you keep doing that, you don't build a long-term brand affinity that reminds people that McDonald's is a great place to bring your kids, or McDonald's is a great place to, um, okay. to catch a, a late-night coffee and to resonate with that, um, that It's emotion. a bit like, I, I always think of Ready Breck uh, with this one. I mean, anyone over 40 out there, when I say Ready Breck, what do you think of? You know, I... I the glow. The glow. You just think of that little boy going to school with the glow around him and you wanted to have that glow, didn't you, as a kid? But how many times have I bought Ready Breck since uh, my mum stopped buying it, you know, uh, last week? Not many times. <laughs> I'm joking. But, you know, you do need both. You do need both. But I will always remember the glow and I still want to feel that glow. And actually, I want my kids to feel that glow when they're going to school. So it's lasted. It's going to last through generations. That effect. Well, you make you make such an important point, though, which is that our, our memories uh are on the one hand, we remember things for a long time, but are incredibly fragile in terms of remembering, thinking about what we're going to buy when we go to the store. And I think if we look at Ready Breck, which is not a brand I, I know well, versus say something like Weedabix, Weedabix have probably done a better job sure. over time of renovating that brand promise yeah. and bringing it to life in, a, in an interesting way. And I think uh, remains top of mind for more consumers than than, than Ready Breck does. Yeah. But that is a huge part of the work that brands have to do over time is, is maintaining relevance both in terms of their message and where they put their message. Yeah, absolutely. And, and speaking of touch points there, you know, my, my three and a half year old adores the Weetabix box because he gets to decide a lot of their their interaction with the kids and the back of pack, you know, comms to kids is about, you know, send in your photos of what you would put with your Weetabix. And he loves thinking of cool and wonderful things he'd put with his Weetabix. And sometimes he even makes me have two slices of banana three blueberries and two halves of strawberries exactly like on the pack and it's not perfect until it's just the same as the pack you know but they are those really invaluable touch points aren't they aren't they on a day-to-day basis they absolutely are they absolutely are okay brand loyalty is it about brand loyalty we got told all the time it was about brand loyalty when i was doing my msc in marketing um and i think it's changed a lot over the years hasn't it where are we now yeah, I think we are. I think fundamentally, you've got to start with the Ehrenberg Bass thinking in this area, which is it's not about loyalty, it's about penetration. So how do you reach as many people um, as as possible and put them into the top of the funnel so they, they flow through to the bottom? That is the fundamental truth, because the, the data analysis, the idea that many more cans of Coke are sold to people who buy one can a year than all the people who mm-hmm. buy six a day, I think it's just sort of irrefutable. Now, that said, and given what I said at the, at the beginning of the podcast, I do believe that in, in there are many categories in which there is a loyalty, there's a loyalty dimension that can yield uh, that long-term value out of customers that you won and that done correctly, uh, that consumers are happy to have uh, that ongoing relationship with mm-hmm. the brand. So it starts with penetration. It starts with the mental, driving that mental availability. Um, but I think it's also about shutting the back door once you've got the, the consumer to try and make sure that you that you keep them. I think it also depends on the brand life stage. You know, I think potentially it wasn't about penetration for uh, Coca-Cola at the very beginning back in 1890 or whenever it was. You know, it might have been about some really loyal, heavy users who were um, the the lead users of of their day and who talked about it a lot. And I think for emerging brands or for, for insurgent brands, you've got to 
be one of those love brands, as we used to call them, where you get that emotional connection with people who have got the really high food or beverage IQ in that category and who are the ones who want to try things first and who other people are going to look to to see what's the thing that you're supposed to be trying and and walking around with in your hand. And you can't just assume that everybody is going to um, is going to buy you straight off if you're that kind of brand. I, I just don't believe you can. Yep, I think that's right. And I think the the best the best brands today do a really nice job of sort of super serving that audience yeah. while also making themselves accessible and relevant to much larger audience who audiences who only want to put so much thought into what kind of dairy alternative yogurt they want to buy and buy this one because it's a bit of fun. Yeah, but and, but they probably didn't start serving that audience until they decided it was time to grow up and uh, you know increase their penetration into the mass market. And originally, right. originally, what they did was was overserve on 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 the. Uh, well, you're super consumer. You're super consumer. Yeah, yeah. Okay, let's move on to one of my favorite subjects, which is brand purpose. Where do you stand on brand purpose? Yeah, let's do it. Um, it is certainly uh, a heavily used word right now. I think if you ask seven different people what they mean by uh, brand purpose, you'll get eight definitions. Um, personally, I think it's overused as a as a word, and uh, I think we need to dive into a little bit about you know what what it means. Um, I think there are probably three categories of companies. There are there are companies who are truly mission led. Uh, and in pursuit of that mission, we'll, we'll put it ahead of business success. I think Patagonia uh, is a is a poster child of this. Their commitment to understanding their impact and changing their behavior is mm-hmm. amazing. Um, Twenty years ago, uh, yeah, they identified cotton as a really problematic. Uh, uh, textile for them and they moved to an entirely organic uh, cotton uh, supply chain that really hurt them for a while they sold less t-shirts but uh, boy did it speak to a sense of, of mission about protecting the uh, uh, the planet and so those are truly purpose-led companies i think then there are a group of companies uh, who fall under the purpose banner that are founded to be on the right side of sustainability issues from reducing waste to including plant-based eating um and are committed to doing good in the world. I really enjoyed working with Mars Pedigree in this area. They, they are relatively early on adopted support of adoption, uh, of dog adoption, uh, as being central to their brand. And it's nice to use uh, a brand at that scale to, to drive some, some good in the world. Dove, Dove, is, I, Dove is a good example of that, isn't it? For uh, Dove, is, Dove, Dove is a good example. Uh, and then I think... Uh, I think and, you know, we've talked in the past about Chipotle, which I think again is someone, pe- some people who've been committed to doing things in a in an untraditional way, and it's cost them very dearly. I mean, when you don't put when you don't put the level of preservatives in the food, you leave yourself at risk from E. coli. And so, I, I, I admire them for the the commitment they've had to the purpose of doing things differently mm-hmm. and the, the steps they've taken in recent years to do it uh, uh, to do it well. Um, and then there, then I think there are a, a, another group of companies which have started their purpose mission with the statistic that millennials and Gen Z are fifty percent more likely to buy from brands with purpose. What are we going to define retroactively as our as our purpose? And I think uh, that is purpose adoption at best. I think it's purpose grafting at, at worst. I think uh, big established brands can be most guilty of it. Um, a key giveaway here is if you're spending more money in the ads talking about your efforts than you are on the efforts yourself. That's not a that's not a great look. Um, 
And as more of that happens, I think consumers will will, will become clear about who is and who is not really making a, a difference. Social media is a way in which brands obviously get get called to account in this uh, in this area. The good news for those those brands is that they can often have huge footprints, um, and they do have a huge amount they can contribute to in other. Uh, less specific purpose and more general purpose ways around sustainability on plastics, on water consumption, et cetera. So mm-hmm. I think in the in the medium term, there's going to be a tracking back towards just being better on purpose rather than trying to identify. Sorry, there's going to be a there's going to be a tracking back towards a more generalized uh, set of operating principles that are better for the planet and better for consumers rather than each brand kind of trying to adopt a purpose. Yeah, I know. And some of them so obviously um, retrofitted. I think Mark Ritson puts it really well where he says, all that brand purpose wank where we're trying to save the world with coffee and moisturizer. And I just thought in <laughs> in, in in typical Mark Ritson style, you know, you got to get some a, a few expletives in there. But, you know, it just drives me nuts. And, and don't get me wrong, listeners out there, brand purpose, when it is authentic, I think is absolutely, you know, really motivating um, for, for people. But when it's not authentic, when you've just sat down with your agency and said, right, well, what's our brand purpose going to be? Well, the fact that you've had to ask what your brand purpose is going to be means you didn't start the business with a mission in mind. And as a result of that, it's slightly, it's it's totally inauthentic to, to make one up. And that personally drives me nuts. Yeah, my former colleague Tom Roach wrote a really nice piece about this, about what is it in the uh, advertising marketing psychology that uh, that maybe uh, led us to this point. Let's include it in the show notes and uh, people can have a read. That would be great. It explains uh, it explains why we got here. It, it sure is. It sure is. Uh, it sure does feel better to to make ads about some of these purpose driven things than 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 selling another CPG product. Yeah. Um, he mentioned, he mentioned something else, which is very funny, actually, in the same video I was watching where he said, I mean, they've even got a, an, an award for bravery, bra- marketing bravery at the moment. He's like, I mean, who's brave out there at the moment? Nurses. Nurses are brave, but the marketing director of Sainsbury's is not brave. <laughs> Let's just g- give it a rest. You know, and I thought that was that was funny, too. Um, not that I'm sure the marketing director of Sainsbury's is very brave in lots of lots of ways. But I think, yeah, you can take the whole um, marketing awards thing too far. Look, I know you're running out of time. So one last question. I've really appreciated all of this time today. One of the big questions uh, we get um, when we are consulting with clients is, how much should I spend as a percentage of revenue? I'm putting together my three-year business plan. What should I put down in terms of percentage spend uh, marketing? I'm putting together my business plan. What should my marketing spend be as a percentage of revenue? And how should I split that spend uh, across online and offline? Look, if you have to pick a number, any number, let's go with let's go with ten percent okay. uh, as a reinvestment into your business's growth over the long term. Um, online versus offline, this one is so dependent on where you are and what you're trying to do that it's impossible to give you uh, a standard answer. But what I would say is that as you get into this uh, this area. Start with your own assets. Make sure your brand promise and uh, premise is coming to life in the in the touch points where you know where you're being found and experienced by your consumers. When you do advertising, make sure you get noticed. Make sure uh, everything is unmistakably from your brand by using your distinctive assets, and then measure the uh, impact, bank the learnings, and create a culture of accountability in your marketing department. Mark, thank you so much for all of that. Where can our listeners learn more? Where can they find you? 
Sure. Mark at brandperformancelabs.com or the website brandperformancelabs.com. Brilliant. Thanks a million and see you soon. Thank you.